to Life Lessons. We're Jen and Sherry. I'm Jen Stevens, a retired teacher of 28 years and the author of the New York Times bestseller, Fast Feast Repeat. And I'm Sherry Bullock. I've worked in healthcare for over 26 years, and I've been an active volunteer for many organizations. We're both wives and moms, and let's face it, we're the glue that holds it all together in our homes. In our careers, we have always been problem solvers who help others. And that's what we'll be doing here, answering questions you didn't know you had, one smart solution at a time. We're always looking for ways to make our lives easier, help us be more productive, or improve our health and wellness. So let's live our best lives one day at a time, and let's have some fun along the way. everybody. We are so glad you're here today. Welcome to this week's episode of the Life Lessons Podcast. How are you doing today, Sherry? I'm doing great. Awesome. I spent the day going to get my TSA flight pre-check. Have you done that? I have not done that. Well, you know how when you're going through security at the airport and there's like a special line? Yes. This gets you in the special line and you don't have to take your shoes off. Oh, okay. Cal and Kate did it years ago, and I just was like, I don't go enough places. But now I've been going a lot of places, so. You know, before COVID, I always somehow got pre-checked. I never had, I always got to go to this line. My my ticket would just always be stamped that I was pre-checked. I didn't do anything. Southwest, I just always flew Southwest. Maybe they knew me. I don't know. Well, it sounds like they may have accidentally had you in the system incorrectly (laughs) because... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, because no, that's not how it works. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's not just Southwest likes you and no. And then since COVID, anytime I fly, I have to get through the regular person line. Yeah. You just somehow had, you were misidentified. <laughs> now they've figured it out. <laughs> All righty then. Well. It's through TSA and it, yeah, you get like a number and it doesn't matter what airline you fly, it prints out. Okay. Anyway, so that was my exciting day. That's fun. <laughs> I still don't even have a star ID, so well, I'm a little behind. I think I have till next May to get that. Do you have that? Yep. Oh, yeah, because you just moved. Right. But I had one before oh, okay. in Georgia as well because I had to renew, I guess, in time. Well, but yeah. I renew in August, so I okay. figure I'll just get it then. Yeah. So. But yeah, I got mine when we just we just renewed. So with my South right. Carolina license, you'll you'll get it. You'll be all set. <laughs> <laughs> well, now it's time for our weekly good news segment. And today I have a story that was shared by Lori, and she shared it from a local TV news reporter by the name of Rick Carl. And Rick wrote, 27 miles northeast of Birmingham, Alabama, lies the town of Margaret. Dylan Sebastian shuffles into the family garage, feeling his way towards his car. He goes to work shining the car, making it sparkle for the folks in his small town to see. The car is Dylan's baby, a 16th birthday present a gift that he will never get to drive. The wind blows through his closely cropped hair as the sun shines on his face. He sits in the passenger seat of his car and his smile never leaves. He hears the rumble of the 412 horsepower engine, but he doesn't see much. It's another perfect day of driving Mr. Dillon. 22 years ago, Dillon was born at 23 weeks. Steve and Kim Sebastian welcomed a son who would face challenges all his life. Dillon was born with cerebral palsy, He was also legally blind. He's fully blind in the right eye and nearly blind in the left. Over the years, Dylan has grown to be a blessing. He's smart, funny, and driven, and he's given back with his selfless love. And Dylan's biggest love of all, cars. 
beautiful, shiny, glorious cars. It was 2012 when Dylan's older sister, Caitlin, turned 16 and she was surprised with a car. Then 12-year-old Dylan wondered aloud, I wonder if I will get a car when I turn 16. Oh, Dylan knew that he'd never get to drive a car, but that car would be his. He'd keep it in perfect condition. His only rule, that he was in the car every time it was driven. It was six years ago, and the best birthday present ever arrived at the house. It was a used 2011 Mustang GT convertible, and it was perfect. Dylan Sebastian visited his pride and joy in the garage and kept it pristine, a pristine car that he would never get to drive. For the folks in Margaret, Alabama, it really is an amazing sight. A shiny Mustang convertible rolling down the road with Dylan in the front seat or squeezed into the back. Dylan making sure that the car only hits the road if he is in it. Steve and or Kim driving Mr. Dylan. Dylan walks back into the garage after his short spin and he feels the license plates on the walls. Dylan has taken his Mustang to several car shows and he somehow caught the license plate bug. He's trying to collect license plates from all 50 states and generous people have helped him near his goal. Folks throughout the world have been messaging Kim and Steve on Facebook while the Sebastians provide a home address. Dylan says, I'm getting close to getting plates from all 50 states. I have plates from all over the world, in fact. Says Mom Kim, people have been so kind to Dylan. We always insist to pay for postage, but most people refuse because they just want to help. Dylan tells me he's proud of his message he has sent to the world. His message that a blind person with cerebral palsy can indeed own a car. They might not be able to drive it, but they can shine it and love it and ride in it and show it to the world. They can feel the wind in their faces and feel free like a bird. I thank Dylan and Kim for spending time with me on the phone. And as I did, I had a feeling that Dylan was about to have a great day, a day of preparing his Mustang for a beautiful ride, the top down, feeling the rumble beneath him. And Steve and Kim, it was about time to do what makes them feel so blessed, driving Mr. Dylan. So Dylan still needs to collect plates from Arkansas, the American Samoa, Connecticut, Delaware, District of Columbia, Guam, Hawaii, Illinois, Kansas, Kentucky, Maine, Missouri, Nebraska, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New Mexico, North Carolina, Oklahoma, Oregon, Puerto Rico, Rhode Island, South Carolina, the Trust Territories, Utah, Vermont, Virginia, Virgin Islands, West Virginia, Wisconsin, and Wyoming. So if you can help Dylan and you'd like to donate a license plate to Dylan, send Dylan an email at dylan.sebastian, S-E-B-A-S-T-I-A-N, at gmail.com. So listeners, we need your stories. Send your good news story to connect at lifelessonscommunity.com. We want to hear about companies that have given you exceptional customer service. Give a shout out to a special someone in your life. Tell us an amazing story or share anything that might be inspirational to fellow listeners. We look forward to hearing from you and sharing your good news in an upcoming episode. Before we get to the Life Lesson of the Week, we want to take a minute to tell you about one of the companies that makes it possible for us to bring you the podcast. On episode 87 and 90, we talked about ways to save money, and I mentioned that food delivery services saves me money. Well, last week I made a mistake, and I did not order any of my meal kit deliveries, so I had zero food in my house, and this required me to go grocery shopping for all of our food for the week. I haven't done this in quite some time, and I was shocked when I got my total and found out that I had spent hundreds of dollars for ingredients to prepare five dinners and to load up on some fruit and veggies for snacks. I have not been to the grocery store for like groceries for a whole week like that in a long, long time. 
I normally pop in just for a few little things here and there, like yogurt and cheese and sour cream. I was like literally sick to my stomach when I left the store and got my total. You know, I hear from people all the time, Sherry, like I was in the pool at water aerobics this week and <laughs> where I love to be. And I was talking to somebody in the pool and I'm like, do you cook? Do you go out? You know, we're like, whatever. And I was telling the person about the meal deliveries that, so that I cook most nights. Mm-hmm. And the lady said, oh, but those are so expensive. Oh my and I'm like, gosh. not really. People just have a perception. I mean, I don't know, maybe they're eating bologna sandwiches or something, but or I don't know what they're eating. If But if they, I shop in a way that I want to cook with foods that I want to eat. Right. And then plus I made like separate stuff because Avery was here with Eric for the weekend. Plus then I wanted different stuff at work. I mean, I'm going to tell you, I spent almost $500 and I literally, when she gave me the total, I almost said, never mind. Well, if you're, if you're getting real food, like real uh, meat and veggie sides and the, all, if you're actually cooking a meal, I mean, I know I could eat for less, but it would be eating a lot different kind of things, right. like frozen dinners or something. I don't and it'd know. be like a lot of, you know, processed food. And yeah. I'm not, I don't feel well when I eat that way. Right. So I made sure not to repeat that mistake. And I ordered Home Chef for Eric and I for this week. We got lemon, thyme, and chicken orzo, Italian sausage stuffed peppers, Tex-Mex pork and poblano penne, pulled pork carnitas with Mexican-style street corn risotto, spicy baked penne diablo, and an a la carte protein of steak strips so that my hubby can make his favorite steak quesadillas while I'm at work this weekend. All of this came to a grand total of one hundred and thirteen dollars. <laughs> That's just awesome. <laughs> Which sounds amazing after, after what your I spent week, yeah. last week. <laughs> so, other than running into the store yesterday for some fresh fruit, yogurt, and salad fixings, my shopping is done for the week, and I have saved hundreds of dollars over last week's grocery shopping bill. Listen, we all work too hard to spend our money on food. So if you haven't tried using services like Home Chef or even Hungry Root, which is another company I use, I really can't recommend them enough. They do save you money. Uh, when I order Hungry Root, I can actually order all my fresh produce and dairy and skip the store altogether those weeks. So I will leave some links and show notes that can help you save even more money on your first order. And now it's time for our life lesson of the week. This week, we are going to talk about a subject that could be really hard to listen to, but is such an important discussion to have. Jennifer Collier, a member of the Life Lessons community, reached out to me in hopes of being a guest on the podcast to share a very important message. Jennifer shared a short documentary with me that featured her family with a focus on her son, Hayden. You see, Hayden has suffered from mental health conditions since he was just four years old. He is now 16, but since the age of eight, Hayden has suffered from suicidal ideations. Jennifer has made it her goal to reach out to others whose own kids may be suffering, to help end the stigma around mental health disorders, and to discuss suicide with others. So welcome, Jennifer. We are so glad that you were able to chat with us today. Thanks so much for having me. So before we get into the Hayden story, will you share with our listeners what you hope they learned today? Sure. One of the things that I learned going through this journey is that mental health can impact children much younger than people really think. And, you know, when we went through the process, there wasn't a lot of resources available to us. And I really didn't understand until I lived it 
exactly how much it can affect really young children. Uh, as you mentioned, my son was four when anxiety first started presenting, age eight when suicidal first started presenting. And I really want parents to know that there are resources out there and there are other people going through the same things they are. That's really important. You know, I'm, I know that as a parent, when your child is struggling, you just think, oh, I just must not be a very good parent. Or you start blaming yourself or you're thinking this is my fault when it's, it's not. It's, it's not parenting skills. You're not going to like parent your way through mental health struggles, are you? Right. No. And that's very common because a lot of mental health conditions in younger children in particular can present in what looks like behavioral problems. Right. And one of the really important things we've tried to share in our messaging and with our children is that the brain is an organ, just like any other organ in your body, right? So your heart, your liver, you know, your kidneys, whatever it is, the brain is just an organ and mental health conditions are no different than a medical condition you might have with another organ in your body. And for some reason, there's a stigma out there where for mental health is not always perceived that way, the same way, say, other kind of physical health conditions are handled. Well, I mean, it's true. If your child had leukemia, they'd be doing a fundraiser at the school for your kid, right? But your kid has mental health, they're like, you're suspended or, you know, whatever. Exactly. I always like to say, you know, that there's no casseroles, right? With when your kid has mental health. So, you know, one of the things as a parent or really a community member, right? When there's a child who, like you mentioned, has cancer or has diabetes, or maybe is having a major surgery or breaks their arm, you know, your circle of, you know, community usually comes together. They set up meal trains and they, you know, offer to watch your other kids and they, you know, are there to support you through it. And when your child is suffering from mental health conditions or maybe even a mental health hospitalization, it's often crickets. There, There's not kind of this community swooning around you to support you. And it, it can make you feel very alone in the process. And it does make you question your parenting skills or am I doing this correctly or am I not, you know, setting the right boundaries? And it really needs to be approached from a medical condition perspective and treated that way. And to teach the kids that it's a medical condition and not something to be ashamed of. Well, and it's not just to teach the kids. We need to teach the communities as well, right? Because people don't reach out out of fear and ignorance, I'm sure. And I don't say ignorance in a mean way. I say ignorance as they don't know. They don't understand it. They don't know what questions to ask. They don't know what the right thing to say is. We see this a lot with death. We talked about like child deaths. People go crickets. Like they don't know what to say. They don't know how to make it not worse. So they do nothing, which makes it worse. Kind of the same thing. They don't know what to do. So they just stand back and observe. Right. And I think also to educating the communities about how to react when someone does share this information with you, because you know, I think sometimes there are people who would jump in and help, but the people going through it won't speak up that. So they may not even know that that family's going through that because maybe when they spoke up about it one time, you know, somebody reacted very negatively 
and, you know, in a judgmental way or brushed them off. And so you kind of quit sharing your story. It was really interesting when the documentary episode came out that covered our story. A lot of kids came to his sister and were like, we had no idea you were going through this. And these were kids who actually were not really nice to her previously. Kids that kind of had been giving her a hard time, kids who were rude to her or bullied her. And then they saw this story and they're like, oh, wow, we didn't know. And so, you know, coach, that always goes back to the, you know, be kind to everyone because you don't know someone's struggles. But I think also how you react when someone gives you that news of maybe my kid is struggling or they they try to open up uh, to be willing to talk to them about it, even if you don't know what to say, because, you know, having a stigma or making jokes about it or something like that could really prevent them from opening up to anybody ever again. And four words you could just say, how can I help? Right. How can I help or tell me more about it? You know, some of my friends who did uh, support me the most, I mean, they really said, I don't know anything about this. Tell me about it. Uh, what can we do to learn more? Right. How can I help you? And really, because I, I didn't know the answers in the beginning either. I didn't right. know how to handle it or what to say or what to do. And I had to kind of learn the hard way. And it's really grown into this passion of, We talk about it very freely in our home. We talk about it very freely around their friends. We talk openly about his medication, his therapies, what he's going through. So it is just like, it's like we're just talking about the weather. Like it's, it's no big deal in our household and other kids have gotten used to that now and opened up to us as a result of that. And so if you have, know someone who's maybe their child is struggling, you know, reach out to your friend of like, Hey, I I don't know, but tell me more about it. Or have you, you know, looked into resources? If not, let's try to find some together. Right. And if you look back historically, I mean, even let's just go back 40 years. I mean, what do they say? I, I don't have the numbers in front of me. One in four, one in three, one in four people suffer from some sort of mental health illness. So I think it's one it's in four. In yeah. One in, it's in people's families, right? Somebody in your family is suffering from right. some sort of mental health disorder. But historically through the years, it's not talked about. That was the little the secret that everyone kept. It was like a shameful thing that there, there's right. that stigma again we, you know, because it, it, it felt like something you just should be able to just suck it up and feel better, right? Yes. Yes. But, I mean, that that's one of the things people, you know, they look at it as you should be more resilient. Right. Or you should be for, you know, people who have faith, you know, you should pray more, you should do this or that more. And it's a medical condition. You know, I, we take a lot of criticism for having started our son on medications at a young age. And, you know, we did a lot of research and learned how, you know, by, by providing him medications young where he could feel what it feels like to be kind of at regular emotions and not out of control emotions. Um, He'll likely need maybe less as he gets older. We don't know yet until his brain fully develops, but Oh, I totally lost my train of thought with that. <laughs> but th- the medicine allows him oh. to re- to learn to self-regulate better. Right. Basically. Yes. The, me- the medication allows him to self-regulate. And But what did I start that sentence out with? I totally lost it. 
Well, let, let's go back in time to when he was four and right. when you when you first realized that there was there was something that was going on and how did it present itself in the home? Start us back right. with the story. So it started really about age three. He was getting close to his fourth birthday and we had a series of events that happened. Our neighbor died, our dogs died, my grandfather died, and then he broke his arm at school. And after all that, we had this severe, severe separation anxiety set in and anxiety in general. And it often presented uh, in the form of rage or anger. So he actually was exhibiting self-harm behaviors at age three, four. So it was mainly hitting himself, hitting his head against the wall, punching himself. He always took it out on himself, never on other people, but would turn it inward. And, you know, at that age, a lot of times symptoms of some other kind of neurodivergent conditions, such as autism and stuff, that they will use some of that behavior for self-soothing. But that was not his case. Uh, We considered that and had him evaluated for it. But for him, it, it really was once his anxiety crossed a threshold, he could not bring himself back down. He could not regulate himself to bring himself back down. And, you know, we consulted every parenting book that was out there. We hadn't experienced this parenting, um, his older sister. So, you know, we, we really, it's that age where they're saying, oh, it's tantrums, right? And people look at you like, yeah, like you're the bad parent who's not controlling these tantrums. And it got really, um, you know, scary to the point that we did end up going to the pediatrician and asking, you know, what we need to do. And that's when they said we needed to consult a child psychiatrist. And that's not something you want to hear when your child is three, you know? And, you know, but once we started treating for the anxiety, he was able to self-regulate. And then we had what I would call normal four-year-old tantrums, normal kid escalations, but he didn't feel them in these extremes. So our goal is always, we want him to feel emotion, right? As humans, we should feel sadness and anxiety and happiness and, you know, all these things. The self-regulation actually was a problem with happiness too. So we, we talk a lot about the anxiety, but excitement also could push him over an edge. And then, you know, we're almost manic uh, with excitement. And then inevitably the adrenaline crash that happens after either one of those escalations. And so by giving him medication, which is, you know, a very personal choice and, and some people consider it, you know, a controversial topic, but by giving him the medication before his brain solidified and his personality really kind of cemented has allowed him to know what it feels like when he's regulated well. So at age eight, he would come to us and say, we need to call the doctor. I am not, I'm too upset. I'm my emotions are not in control. I mean, and that's, that's not something you typically hear from an eight-year-old, nine-year-old. Uh, but it was something that, you know, I think because we started so young and it was just a part of our everyday life and conversation that he was able to express that to us when, 
you know, he was, cause as you grow and change, your medication needs grow and change and uh, puberty, you know, puberty throws a whole other wrench in there and, you know, a whole new medication regimen. And, you know, it's changed over the years. And I always say that that's, you know, one tool in his toolbox. So he, you know, that often when you're talking about mental health and particularly mental health with, with children, there's not just one solution, right? So, you know, getting them in therapy or getting them evaluated for medication or getting them whatever the case might be, you know, other technique, deep breathing techniques is something we used a lot. None of those things by themselves typically is the solution. It's usually kind of a culmination of all these things together that really can be healing and help them grow and learn into the, you know, people they really can be. Let's talk about how um, you, you talked in the documentary, how hard it was to actually get that initial care that he needed. You know, you're at the pediatrician's office there. They say, call a child psychiatrist. You're like, no big deal. I'll call one. I'll make an appointment. We'll go there. Right. That's how it should be. That's how it should work. But that's not what happens. Right. No, that's not what happens at all. And it was probably the most frustrating experience I've ever been in. So I'm a healthcare executive. I've worked in the industry for over 25 years. So I'm very well versed in insurance and navigating insurance. And it was so difficult. I almost you know, gave up because I didn't know what to do. So, you know, you start with your insurance to see what child psychiatrists are in network. Well, many psychiatrists and particularly children's psychiatrists don't accept insurance. So it's self-pay. Typically an initial evaluation can be several hundred dollars. Each subsequent visit can be well over a hundred dollars. So even if you have good insurance, which I did, that would cover mental health, you may not be able to find anyone that accepts it. And then if you do, there's likely a six month to a year wait to get in. And so I had this list of doctors. We lived in um, kind of a suburban area sandwiched between two larger metropolitan areas. And so I just kind of printed everybody within a, you know, a 75 mile radius to capture these two cities. And I just started going down the list and either they were not accepting new patients or they had this crazy long wait, you know, or they're like, okay, well, we'll let you know, but we have no idea when we'll have an opening. And then the, the most really traumatic one for me. It was the last one on the list. Um, it was a large university system in a nearby city. And, and they were kind of last on my list because of it being, you know, a really big university system. And they had many child psychiatrists. And so I called them. And when I started mentioning some of the behaviors like the self-harm, the lady on the phone just completely blew me off and said, he's too severe. He's too severe. We can't treat him. And I'm like, my my kid is three. Like, what do you mean he's too severe? I mean, he's a kid. He, yeah. you know, he plays outside with balls and he colors and he, you know, watches cartoons. Like he's a kid. He has friends. He goes to daycare and they, they were like, no, that's, that's too severe. And, and aren't you thinking as a parent, you're like, wait a minute, you're a professional. Like if you right. can't see my kid, who's supposed to see my kid? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> That's what I would, I'd be like, wait, what? Yeah. And so, you know, like in the beginning you're thinking, oh, I'm going to research who's the best 
you know, child psychiatrists to take them to. And by the end, you're like, just who will take him? I mean, right. it's, you know, it, it, it became very frustrating. We finally did find one that was all the way at the north end of one of those cities. So, you know, an hour to an hour and a half drive for us to get there one way, um, who was able to take him. And, you know, I'm very thankful to that doctor who did educate us a lot about the reason to treat when they're young and, and, you know, to go slow, we went very slow in introducing new things and what signs to look for. And, you know, I'm very thankful for that, but it took several months to even find that. And all the while, you know, we're trying to manage him at home and man, I you know we both worked full time and he went to daycare and we're trying to work with the daycare and it was a very difficult time. How was the daycare managing it? I, the reason I ask is, People who have read Cleanish, um, which just came out in in January of this year, we got kicked out of several daycares because of my son's behavior, which ended up being related to food sensitivities and chemical sensitivities. And once we got a handle on that, it made a huge difference. But in the meantime, the daycare's like, "Sorry, you got to go." Right. So we were very lucky in that we had a small community daycare at a church that worked very closely uh, with us. That's now good. there were, there were times they called us and said, he has to go home today. You have to come get right. him because today we're not, you know, resetting. Um, but they did, they, tr- they gave us suggestions. We tried different things. There was one or two teachers there that he was very attached to. And so if he was having a difficult day, he pretty much went with that teacher, no matter what age group classroom they were working that day because it worked better. But, you know, you're right. We, we were getting to the point where they were saying, if, if we, if we can't control this behavior at the school, then, you know, we are going to have to, you know, remove him from the program. I think the thing that saved us is that all his behavior was directed at himself. Mm-hmm. So he would, you know, hit, start hitting himself at school. He might throw, you know, toys on the floor, but he never tried to hit a teacher, something like that. So I think that's the only thing that saved us. But I've spoken with many other parents whose children have the same medical conditions as my son, and they weren't so lucky. You know, right. maybe their kid did exhibit outwardly physical aggression mm-hmm. and or the daycare didn't know them personally. I mean, you know, we had his older sister there, so they had kind of already known us. Um, and, you know, it's a smaller town where everybody knows everybody. But I, I spoke to some friends who, yeah, they, they were not as lucky. And that, that just adds another stressor right? And you're trying to work and you're trying to be a good mother. And then you're trying not to forget about your other kid. And all of your energy is getting zapped into this trying to get them help, which should be easy, right? We're in a country that, you know, we should have good access to medical care. And, you know, the mental health care system is just not accessible to people. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely much. broken. We um, were looking for some, before we moved from Augusta, we tried, one of the members of my family was looking for some, some mental health support and no one took our insurance, just like you said. Right, right. And then we finally found someone who did and they're like, all right, well, you can't come to the office and get the forms. We will send them to you. We'll send you the forms and you will send them back in and then we will call you. We're still waiting for them to call us. We don't even live there anymore. I'm like, let's just see if they ever call us. Right? If they ever call, you <laughs> know. They're not going to call us. And we've, we've made a couple of cross-country moves. Um, and every time we do that, I have to find a new 
psychiatrist for him. And mm-hmm. you know, I mentioned I work in healthcare. So I work in healthcare systems where my insurance benefits usually mean I have to go to providers in our network of physicians. Right. right. But no no system I've ever worked for has had children's psychiatrist. So I have to go have to go outside the system. And then they don't want to accept you because all your other care has to go back to the competing health system. And I used to have to take the records and get these, you know, years at this point of history and send it over and literally call the office every day and asking them to make an exception and showing that, hey, we are a good patient who comes every month and we, you know, will be here like clockwork to get his medicine. And eventually if they could, if I could make it past the the front office, to the like physician assistant or nurse practitioner, then that's how we would get in because a lot of times they found, I guess, his case fascinating because he was so young and because we were such big advocates, which they don't see a lot with really younger children, parents of younger children. Well, that's a very important lesson that you didn't take no for an answer. Yes, you can't, you can't take no and you have to be persistent and you know, the, the help is out there. It's just difficult to access. Yeah, it really is. Even for adults, it is. So, I mean, I, I can see even more so for kids because it's really children are specialty when it comes to medicine. Yep. And I, I will say one, because we're getting ready to go through a move again. And so I'm again, looking for new psychiatrists and all that. I will say that one positive thing of the pandemic is restrictions on video visits for mental health have been lifted and not been put back in place in many states. Um, I can only speak about the states I'm familiar with, but I know in my state in particular, you can now do initial mental health visits via video, which is something you couldn't do in the past. And so I have found there is a lot more resources available now if you're willing to do kind of an online internet version. But for that initial assessment, it is better if you can get in with someone because it, you know, an initial assessment can involve an assessment of all kinds of things, anxiety, depression, ADHD, different personality disorders, you know, schizophrenia, whatever it is that could be out there. And it it's in depth. They usually have the teachers fill out forms. They have you as parents fill out forms. They might ask you to have other people like in your circle of family to fill out forms. Because children act differently in different settings. They do. Oh, I filled out many forms yes, like that many over forms. the years. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And now that he's a teenager, he's supposed to fill them out himself. And he, you know, of course, doesn't have any patience for any of that. And so like, I'll fill it out and then show it to him. I'm like, did I... Did I answer Is your feelings right? right? <laughs> you know, so he'll he'll change one or two and be like, okay, that's right. So yeah. <laughs> so did Hayden go to public school or was he in private school? So he went to public school. This was actually something that I'm a huge proponent of. My mom was a public school teacher for, you know, 30 years. And um, I'm a, you know, we lived in areas where public schools are good. And so I really wanted them to be a part of the public school system. Did he have an IEP? Yes. Not, not initially though. And I'll tell you, I wish I had done an IEP sooner. I'm so glad you asked this question (laughs) because- so initially, you know, we did what's called a 504, yep. which... Can I interrupt you for one yeah. second? Just in case a listener doesn't know, an IEP is an individualized education plan. And it's for anybody who has any type of disability. Diagnosis. And, and diagnosis. it's essential as the teacher in me needs to pop in and say, 
you have got to start getting those things early. Early. A fi- 504 is a great protection for you. Once you have a 504, an IEP, when you have some of those legal things in place, your child is protected in yes. a way. And as a family, you're protected in a way that they are not protected when you're just like, you know, a normal kid, right? And right. I will tell you a lot of school systems, and I learned this with my son and moving to three different states with him while he was in school, some school systems don't want to give you one or they if don't. they come with right. one, they don't want to renew it and they want to play the, let's see how he does. Yes. No, 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 get no, no, get no, no, get it, get, get it. it. And, you know, some yeah. school systems will say, we don't do 504s. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. Yeah, yeah. Legally, you have to. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, and it's funny you mentioned that. We made three different state moves also while he's been in school. And, you know, I don't know why I was so resistant at first because my mother was a special ed teacher. So you mm-hmm. would think that. And you know what? It, this is an example of where I fell to stigma. So uh, myself. So an IEP, the individualized plan, they have to qualify under certain diagnoses. And the mental health ones are under a category of what they call ED, which is emotional disturbance. But a lot of times people refer to it as emotionally disturbed, which is not the correct definition. It is emotional disturbance, which means there's something that has disrupted them emotionally, rather that be a mental health condition, maybe divorce in the family or a traumatic death or something they've experienced. But that label of ED is also used for really physically aggressive, angry teenagers and things like that. And I just felt like he's not ED. I'm not going to get him labeled that. And I don't know why I resisted that so long. And I tell everybody now, like, I wish I had done it years sooner. So we did a 504 pretty early, which did allow some basic accommodations. Um, He actually, you know, he's got some other things. He is ADHD and he's a left-handed person. So if you take a lefty who's ADHD, their handwriting is atrocious (laughs) because they don't have any patience and they care, you know. So uh, we got accommodations where they couldn't deduct points for his handwriting we got accommodations mostly for if he was overwhelmed at school, he had safe places he could go. One of the best accommodations, and we actually had to suggest this at future schools, but the school in South Carolina, the counselor there was amazing. And she came up with this Basically, there was a sticker on the back of his school ID. And if he showed that to a teacher and said, I need to go to the counselor, they could not stop him. And he was to go straight to the counselor's office. It was a fast pass. So if he was having an emotional escalation, like he was starting to feel anxious or out of control, Uh he all he had to do was show that little sticker on the back of his ID to a teacher and they would call down to the counselor's office and let you know, her know that he was coming. And so we instituted that at future schools when we moved because it really was the best uh, kind of resource he got with his anxiety. Oftentimes substitute teachers were a problem because they didn't know like his moods. And so if he was withdrawn, they would oftentimes kind of like you know, get up in his space and be like, are you okay? Are you all right? And that just makes it worse. Right. Uh And so we had to use the pass a lot for that. But once we got on the IEP, I was able to get things like counseling through the school and able to set up 
kind of more extensive accommodations. And yes, they legally have to provide that. And, you know, we did have one school where, you know, they said, we're, we're not going to do these accommodations because also being ADHD, he, he loses paper a lot. Does not make it from the school to home and right. home school? And because he's lost it, that makes him anxious. And then because he gets, you know, it's kind of a spiral. Right. And they said, you know, we don't do these accommodations. And, you know, I had to go back and I had to like pull out the legal language and say, okay, if you're not going to do that, how are you addressing, you know, these particular items? And, you know, it was very difficult because I was trying to be very respectful of the school staff and the, and the teachers, because, you know, like mentioned my mom being a special ed teacher, like I know what they go through sometimes. And our goal was always to work with them to find the best plan, but, but still be very certain that you have the rights because you, you have the right, have the rights and you are entitled to the services that right. are there. And they're right. free. They're and they free. have funding for it. There's, yes. Yeah. And, and we were actually able to get him kind of a resource hour where, you know, he goes in and they help him with any assignments that he has lost, that he is missing. And it just keeps him kind of on track and kind of with some of those executive functioning. So because of the kind of mental health conditions he has, it disrupts a lot of what they call his executive functioning, which by the high school years, they really want the kids to be exhibiting on their own, self-managing their work and their assignments. And and he's not there yet. I think he will get there, but he's not there yet on mm-hmm. some of those things. And so the, that's where those accommodations And come did in. you know, you probably do, but I didn't know, they even have these accommodations that will follow them to college. My husband right. is a... Well, he just retired as a college professor and he was talking about a student he had with accommodations. I was like, I had no idea. So I think the 504, so this is where it gets confusing because an IEP is way more extensive than a 504 is my understanding. But I think it's a 504 can follow you to college, but an IEP does not. But I think through your, you can then switch to a 504 when you go to college. Well, I just would have had no idea. Even as as an elementary teacher, I knew it went through K-12, but I didn't know they went through college. So yeah, I probably only know that because I'm an adjunct faculty at a university in Austin. And okay. so that is probably re- the only really reason I, I knew well, that I had as well. no idea. And and when he was talking about it, I'm like, y'all do accommodations too. So yes. it was it was great to know. So everybody who's listening. <laughs> I would assume if it's a state college, right? Like I'm I bet private colleges aren't under the same requirements as state. Well, I don't know about that because the university I teach at is a private university okay. and I am required to follow those accommodations. Now, if that's just because it's the university policy or if it's a state rule, I'm not really I'm not well versed in that, but you know, definitely I think the main lesson for parents though is that accommodations can exist for mental health conditions. Right. Right. So People think about, I think the most common one people think of with the schools is dyslexia and ADHD, right? That's, you know, and then maybe like those who are hearing or sight. Visually impaired, impaired, they have, yeah. Right. And so, you know, don't be scared off by the emotionally disturbed label like I was. They really just need to update the the language. I keep telling and them also, that. And also, don't true. wait for the school to offer it for you. Right. Ask for it. They're likely not going to offer it. 
ask for it. And once you request it, request it in writing, if you can, like via email, they only have so many days to start the process and so many days to finish. It is like a 90 day process. It doesn't happen in a week, but there is a requirement for how long they have to complete the assessment. And these are federal requirements. They they have to do it. So it doesn't matter what state you're in. Correct. So let's just transition here a little bit because um, we've talked for quite a while, but we have not talked about suicide yet. Right. And so I have just a few numbers that might blow our listeners away a little bit. CDC says that from the ages of five to 11, suicide is the eighth leading cause of death. And ages 10 to 24, it is the third leading cause of death. So that's that's huge. Yet this is a subject we don't talk about, right? What talk to us about Hayden and when he started discussing death with you? So the first time Hayden voiced wanting to die was at age eight, and we cover this kind of in depth in the documentary, but kind of in the short version. You know, when you first hear that, you know, it's of course in the middle of an escalation and you're thinking, you know, oh, they don't really know what they're saying and you don't kind of give it enough weight always, you know, you think, you know, particularly, you know, we had a, a nice home and food on the table and he had friends and, you know, you think, well, what would an eight year old have to, that's so bad that they want to die. Right. And, you know, I, I then, you know, we kind of thought, look, kind of didn't give it very much credit. And then he said it again, another time. And then I started Googling and found some of those statistics uh, that you mentioned. And then I started reading articles of young children having suicidal thoughts. And, and actually there, there's a lot of research out there about how a lot of adults who battle suicidal thoughts will tell you they experience them as far back as, you know, age seven, eight, nine. And I was really shocked and frankly, scared at that information. I felt so out of control because, you know, all you want to do is protect your kids, right? But how do you protect them from these thoughts, right? From this depression. And it it really was, it was a, a very kind of scary time. And it was something we had to start educating ourselves on. And, and really what has led to kind of this passion of us talking about it um, is because, you know, of the, you know, ki- suicidal thoughts in kids, in teens, um, and kind of the really that the epidemic that's happening with suicide. And so many of them wouldn't like, like Hayden said it to you, but right. how many of them think it and don't say it? I can tell you from personal experience a lot. Um, and the reason why I say that is because we have talked about it and we have spoken at out of the darkness walks. We have spoken, we held a a fundraiser event with the screening of the suicide prevention movie. You know, we've spoken at these different events. Kids know we're a safe place to talk about it. And so kids, my son's age, my daughter's friends, you know, they, they have come to us and talked to me as a mother figure of kind of their thoughts and their struggles. And I do always try to talk through with them how they could discuss it with their own parents. But there are some that flat out 
will say no. And there are a lot of kids who you would never suspect, right? Honor roll kids involved in extracurricular school activities, right? Lots of friends, right? All the things you say you're supposed to do to keep a kid out of trouble, right? A kid who's fully engaged in all of that. And yet they called me on the weekend crying because they had a gun and wanted to end it. And that that did happen to us. And luckily we were able to intervene and, and get the school to contact parents for professional help. And, you know, that that's great. But, you know, how many times do they not reach out to someone? Right. But, you know, we also, when we filmed the documentary, uh, we did a lot of what they call B-roll footage with, you know, just kind of background of my son with his friends. And afterwards I was driving two kids back to their house and he was in the car. So here's three teenage guys. And the other two both casually mentioned that they have both made suicide attempts. So not just thoughts, but actual attempts. And I said, guys, you guys got to like be interviewed for the Stigma app and be, you know, get involved with this. And I said, young men in particular, right? Because society with men is like, oh, you know, they don't have feelings or they got to man up, right? This horrible, you know, stigma with it. And guess what? Men are human and have feelings too. And, and young men, this is a very hard thing. And I said, look, here's three of y'all living within a mile radius of each other, the same age in a somewhat, you know, kind of rural suburban area. And you all have struggled with the same thing. And you would have never known if we weren't doing this filming. And I'm like, and how many other are in your circle that you don't even know about? Right. So let me ask you this, healthcare workers, when they, um, you know, somebody comes into the ER, they're suicide screening. Right. Should schools somehow be doing suicide screening in some way? Well, so a lot of them do in the counselor's office. So there is actually a suicide severity scale that most of the schools use. And I've seen this in multiple states now, so I feel it's fairly uh, universal. And it's actually out there on the web, too, for uh, I think it's called the Carolina Suicide Assessment Scale. And it has a little guide for parents and friends, too. It's basically like five questions that you can ask to screen sort of where someone is in their suicidal thoughts. But I don't think that screening, it's not a part of, say, every kid. It's just the kids who go get counseling services or go to the counselors. So if, if you have a kid like the one I mentioned who outwardly appears to be doing great in everything, no, they're they're not screening. And, you know, I, I don't know the answer for how to address that. Because, you know, if that kid had been pulled in by a counselor, probably would have said, no, I've never thought right. of hurting myself. Right. I'm fine. Right. I'm fine. fine. Yeah. And, and that's why I say like, this has to be a topic that we just casually talk about. Like we do any other, you know, like we talk about safety on their phones and we talk about, you know, and these are things that you don't just sit down and have one conversation about. Right. It's something that you kind of bring up continuously. Right. Like, you know, how to grow into a good person and how to treat people you're dating and how to, you know, be safe on the internet. And, you know, kind of this suicide prevention needs to be a part of that as well. And if you don't make it into this huge, dramatic conversation, I find most of the time kids talk to me the most when we're in the car. 
I don't know what it is about like you're driving and they're behind you or something, but that's where I've had some of the most profound life discussions with my kids' friends. And, you know, really, if you just listen and talk to them and don't react in kind of this shocked manner and, oh my gosh, we have to get you help right now, you know, freak out, they will open up and and tell you about it. And that's true. You know, it is something that you can continue to talk to them about and, you know, resources. It's why we made the documentary or, you know, we were, you know, asked to be featured in the documentary. And it's why we did those things is because it's another tool or resource, you know, you can watch it together and, and talk about it and, you know, different things like that, that to kind of just make it as this is something that exists it's unfortunately very normal. A lot of people suffer from it. And how do we combat it? So there's one question that the Life Lessons community, a member asked me to ask you, and I think it's a really great question. She says, how much should we preemptively talk to our kids about suicide when there are no problems at the current moment? How much is raising awareness versus scaring them? My kids are 11 and 13. And I think that's probably something a lot of parents think, like, oh, I don't want to put that into their head. Like, what is your thought on that? Yeah, so obviously I'm I'm not a mental health professional, but I mean by 11 and 13, you know, my son had already had suicidal thoughts for 5 years. He had already had episodes that his friends had witnessed um of where he escalated to the point of saying those things. And so I think by 11 and 13 they're already exposed to it, right? So rather you know, they, you say there's no problems at the moment, but you might not know. And it doesn't have to be about scaring them about it. It it really is more about like, how, how could you support a friend who's struggling? So maybe they don't want to talk to you about themselves, but if you're just really open about like supporting as far as like, Hey, if there's someone, you know, who's struggling. Right. And a lot of times you can introduce, I think those conversations by being like, Hey, my friend, her daughter has a friend who, you know, is really struggling with this. And I mean, I don't know, do you know anybody who struggles with that? Or, you know, there could be kind of a way to like bring it up without it being, I think that's a wonderful way of doing it. I think so. Very, very great way. Just something to, to discuss. And we had, when we did the the kind of showing of a, a suicide prevention film, uh, different than the one that we were in. We had kids as young as 10 there and it was eye opening for them, but completely appropriate. I followed up with some of those parents later. None of them reported any of their kids kind of, you know, being anxious about it or scared about it. I think they're probably more aware than you realize. Just, I mean, Unfortunately, it's it's out there, right? And even more so with the internet and yeah, you know everything right. like that. I so, think you're right. Yeah. When I really think if you talk to your kids about it, even if they're not suffering, which hopefully yes. they're not, but if you have the conversation with them, they are going to be more prepared to help somebody who could be suffering, who might confide in them. And rather than them freezing up and being like, I don't know what to do. I don't know that, what to do. Yeah. They know that they can go talk to their parent and that's a safe place to say, hey, I have a friend I'm worried about. Yeah. And and know that, okay, maybe they don't want to give you the friend's name, but maybe they could talk to you about the situation and you could, because a lot of times they're like, I don't want you to call their parents, right? They don't want their right. parents to know. And so you do have to be willing to support them in the way that they're 
willing to be supported. And, you know, my daughter has experienced this a lot. She's two years older than her brother. And so they were at the same schools, you know, sometimes. And when she was in middle school, the big thing at the time was always jokes of, oh, just go kill yourself. Right. And she actually talks about this in the documentary, but you know, that would really upset her because the, you know, particularly the boys at her, you know, like at her lunch table and things like that, they would make that joke all the time. And so her circle of friends learned real quick that, Hey, that that's not funny. Right. It's definitely not funny. It's not funny. And, you know, they, you know, they, they learned you want to be in her circle of friends. You're not making that joke. Right. And if we could get more people to normalize that, that's also part of how, but you know, that was middle school age that that was happening. And so, you know, but kind of back to the person's question is, you know, I think again, it, it doesn't have to be about, you know, kind of scaring them, but more about like, if you're ever encountering anyone who's struggling, like or if any of your friends ever see something like this, you know, as soon as they can, the way the psychiatrist explained it to me, as soon as they can uh, comprehend conception, which I think is like around seven, somewhere around there, they can comprehend suicide. So if they can comprehend conception, which is how life is conceived, they can comprehend death and they can comprehend suicide. So, you know, for us, because of my son, it's just always been something that's been discussed in our household. So my kids just grew up with it. But, and a lot of their friends are taken aback kind of the first time, you know, like if they're like, his friends are here and I'm like, Hayden, go take your medicine. Like, I'm not like whispering, go take your medicine. You're quiet. There's no shame. Yeah. There's no shame. Right. And then they'll be like, oh, what's, are you sick? You know, what's that for? And I'm like, oh, this is for some anxiety and depression. We just move on. We just keep going. And then later they'll ask my son, like, hey, why do you take that? And then they'll be like, oh, yeah, I, I struggle too. You know, like that, that's led to some really open conversations. Well, we are almost out of time. What would be, in closing, final advice that you have for listeners? You know, I think the main thing is is just to be aware that it's occurring and it can happen in children who are young and to just really remember that it is a medical condition and it is not a behavior problem. It's medical and it should be kind of treated with the same importance as any other medical condition. And there are lots of support groups out there. There are lots of parents who have lived through this. So even if you feel like you're alone, I promise you're not. And, you know, I think more and more resources are becoming available, but seek them out if you don't know what they are. Well, we appreciate you being here so very much. And we will have a link to the documentary oh, great. in uh-huh. the show notes so people yes. can see it. And thank you so much for being here. All right. Thank you so much for having me. Before we get to the listener-led lesson of the week, we want to take a minute to invite you to the Life Lessons VIP community on Circle. Not only can you interact with us in a private online community, You can also connect with other listeners and community members. Sherry hosts monthly Zoom hangouts, and we can connect and talk. They're a whole lot of fun. You can join us in the new VIP community by going to lifelessonscommunity.com slash VIP. Choose your monthly membership contribution of either $4.99 or $9.99, and you can change to a different tier at the end of the month simply by managing your subscription within the platform. Choose the option that feels like the right value to you. And if you truly get value from the podcast each week, we'd love for you to support us at the higher package. 
it really helps us bring you the podcast and all the costs associated with it just went up. <laughs> we just had to buy a bunch of, we had to buy episode production and that went yeah. up. A lot of things are going up these days. Well, we appreciate all of you that are already VIP supporters more than you know. Yes, we do. And I'm getting, I'm loving getting to know y'all too. Yeah. So now it's time for our listener-led lesson. This could be a life hack, a book recommendation, a special recipe, a kitchen tip, or anything along those lines. And keep in mind, these are sent in by listeners. So we would like for you to send in something. Send us in a life hack. Send us a book recommendation. We don't ever get any book recommendations. Occasionally. Every now and then. You know, somebody recommended a long, long time ago, The Artist's Way, and then yeah, that's several right. people have brought that book up that we have interviewed. Yep. All right. So I forgot about that. You're right. A recipe. Send us a recipe. Everybody's got something like that. A kitchen tip, anything. So everybody who's listening, make a mental note. Connect at lifelessonscommunity.com. Send us a listener-led lesson. And today's comes from someone who did just that, Suzanne from Texas. She said, I have a life hack to share. One of my pet peeves is going to a public bathroom stall and finding there is no hook to hold my purse. I will not put it on the floor, and I'm not very good at bouncing around my neck while using the toilet. That's just funny, Sherry, because I've actually done that. I will hook it around my neck like I'm like a horse or something. (laughs) I put it directly over my head, yeah, not I'm, over I'm my shoulder, it. but like it's, it's like a feed bag hanging below. <laughs> <laughs> that is what I do. <laughs> or I also will wedge it in the, the stall opening. You know how it has like the crack? door. Yeah, I'll wedge yes, it on the I've edge of the door and too. hope it doesn't mm-hmm. fall down. But yeah, there's mm-hmm. 0% chance I'm putting it on the floor. No. So Suzanne has a hack for preventing me from having my feed bag on. <laughs> She said, I've started carrying a metal over-the-door hook in my purse, the kind you would use in your bathroom or on any door. You could also choose a plastic one. It's small and lightweight, and I can easily hook it over the top of the stall and voila, a place to hang my purse. Such a simple fix, but one that is really useful. And I actually have some of those hooks. I bought them for my shower to hang over my, and I have some left over. So I'm going to go get one of those. use them over your shower? Yeah. I like about that. um, to hang my towels to dry. In our new bathroom, we don't have, my, like my bathroom, the master bathroom, which is all mine, doesn't have a towel bar. Okay. For whatever mm-hmm. reason, there's no towel bar in there. I don't know why. And there's like a couple hooks on the back of the door, but right. I, was, I have like a regular towel and a hair towel and it's so humid here, they were not getting fully dry. Right. So I got some little ones that hang over the shower door. We have a glass shower door and there are little hooks that hang over that. And so it gives me room to spread them out and they dry. So I just hung them over the the metal shower door. Like the actual door, like the frame? The frame. The 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 frame. Yeah. Okay. Like it's got like the way my shower is, it's got like one section that's the fixed. Yeah. It's a fixed section. And then the other section is open and close. And so they just hang in the part that doesn't open and close. And actually today I forgot to... I always take them off and throw them over the the rail so I can Uh get to them better. But today I forgot to do that. So I had to like climb over and get them. But it was so much easier than like if I forgot my shower and it was all the way across the room. I mean, if I forgot my towel, which I've done before, but now I can't. That's so much more classy than what I would have done. I would have got command hooks and stuck them on the glass. (laughs) Well, that would work. That would work. Command hooks would absolutely work. But these (laughs) hang over the top. 
<laughs> but I've got some, so I'm so excited. I found them on Amazon. Cool. Well, at the end of each show, we share a motivational quote from a lister. However, I didn't have any motivational quotes from listeners. So I need you to send me yours, please. Pretty please. (laughs) So today's quote comes from me. (laughs) Um, I actually saw this quote the other day and I loved it. And I put it in the notes section of my phone. It is from Ralph Waldo Emerson. And he wrote, write it on your heart that every day is the best day in the year. He is rich who owns the day and no one owns the day who allows it to be invaded with fret and anxiety. Finish every day and be done with it. You have done what you could. Some blunders and absurdities no doubt crept in. Forget them as soon as you can. Tomorrow is a new day. Begin it well and serenely with too high a spirit to be cumbered with your old nonsense. This new day is too dear with its hopes and invitations to waste a moment on the yesterdays. And, you know, I read that and I read it a couple times. And um, I think we've all had just kind of a bad day. And sometimes we carry it into our next day. And I felt myself doing that the other day and I woke up and I was like, wait a minute, this is a brand new day. I get to decide how this day goes and I can't do anything about what happened yesterday. I'm just going to leave it in yesterday. And, you know, we have zero control over what's happening in the world around us, sometimes what's happening in our own personal life or work life, but we can control how we react to it, how we process it, whether or not we let it go and whether or not we carry it around with us. That's so true. So we're not powerless. We do hold the power when it comes to how we handle life. So you know, I really I woke up that. mad at Chad the other day. <laughs> so I went to bed <laughs> mad at him, and I woke up mad at him still, and I was mad. So I was like, you know, I'm going to make a list of things that I love about him. So I did that. And then did you feel better? Yeah, I felt better. Because what we focus on expands. You know, and if I focus on the fact that there was a pear in the sink with two bites taken out of it, just lying in the sink. (laughs) And I'm like, why is there a pear in the sink? Are you going to come back and finish this pear? No, no, no one's finishing the pear. (laughs) Or I could focus on the fact that he's, you know, over at the beach house installing a new shower on the walkway or something and and be positive about that and, and focus on the good. What we focus on is what multiplies. Yeah. So when you focus on the, the flaws... You find them everywhere. And when you focus on the positives, you also find them everywhere. Right. Well, and you know, I don't know. I think I've, maybe I shared this, but maybe I didn't. I was mad at my husband one week for like three days. He was just annoying me for like three. <laughs> everything he said annoyed me. But it all came back to one thing he'd said on a Tuesday. <laughs> And on Friday, I had to go to work. I had to be at work at like six o'clock in the evening. And on Friday, I woke up in that afternoon. I was still mad at him and he was at work. And I thought, you know what? I am not going to go to work annoyed with him and still mad about something he said on Tuesday. Right. And that's not my patient's problem that I'm mad at my husband and it's not my coworker's problem. And so on the way to work, I stopped at his work. And he came out and he said, what are you doing? I said, I need to tell you something. I'm really mad about what you said the other day. And I just got it off my chest. And he said, do you feel better? I said, yes, I do. <laughs> and and that was it. I could let it go then. I just had there to you go. Get you got to get it off chest. your chest. That's so Sometimes funny. You just I love it. Get it off your chest. Call a friend, but don't take it with you to the next yep. day. Yep. And especially it, it not just from Tuesday. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's so funny. All right. Well, listeners, thank you for joining us today. Don't forget to join the Life Lessons VIP community. Go to lifelessonscommunity.com slash VIP to become a VIP podcast supporter for either $4.99 or $9.99 a month. It really helps us bring you episodes of the podcast, which we love doing. I love doing it. I want to keep doing it. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, and we would love for you to leave reviews. That helps us reach others. Do you have a story to share for our good news segment, a listener-led lesson, or a motivational quote that means something to you? Or do you have an area of expertise like Jennifer that we had on today? She's a member of our Life Lessons community. She reached out. And she was our featured guest. So if you have an area of expertise, um, it could be anything that you know about that you would like to share. It doesn't even have to be an area of expertise. It could be an experience. Well, that's true. Email us at connect at lifelessonscommunity.com and then listen each week to see if we share your story or tip. And until next week, thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.